Uh, you can start turning in your Bible to the passage that's on the screen there. We are in Acts chapter 6 today. We have made it all the way to the sixth chapter of the book of Acts, a journey that began for us just after Easter. Um, so we'll be done with this series in 2026 to 2027 at some point, I think. Um, but I'm glad that we're here to this passage today. I'm glad that you're here with us. Um, if you don't, um, if you haven't already, rather, filled out a Connect card, wherever you sat down today, you probably sat down on a little slip of paper, a Connect card. And the reason that those exist is because I would love the opportunity to pray for you according to the needs that are happening in your life. And so um, if you don't do that, then I just have to guess and make something up. Um, but I would love to pray for you according to what's actually going on. So please, whether you're a, a member, whether you are a guest, you've walked in here for the first time today, I don't care how many times you've been here, take a minute, fill out that Connect card, put it in the offering box before you leave today. I would really appreciate that. Um, as we turn to Acts chapter 6 today, we have uh, the one and only Alan Hodges reading our text for us today. Um, I'm going to invite you all to stand with me as we stand out of reverence for God's Word as we read this passage together. Acts 6 verses 1 through 7. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God in serving tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me as uh, we begin. Fathers, we open your word. Uh, Lord, we remember the fact that this is a, a spiritual book that the Holy Spirit has inspired and you have written for us. And so today we are dependent completely on the Spirit's work in us that we would comprehend this, we would understand it, Lord, we would believe it and obey it. Lord, we, we open your word with a desire today to see more of your glory Lord, in Jeremiah 33, it says, Ask of me, and you shall see more of my glory. And so today, we ask to see more of it. In every text that we study, we want to see more and more how great this Savior is that we have. That our hearts would pray all day and every day. Our heart, the cry of our heart would be, Hallelujah, what a Savior that we have. Lord, we pray all this in His mighty name. Amen. So around... Um, the time of the trial that you and I studied last week, maybe you weren't here with us, we're picking up the story of Acts as the 12 apostles just for the second time had a run in with the law, and they were told again, you cannot speak about Jesus, you cannot say that he is the Christ, the Messiah, you cannot claim that he is risen from the dead, and the apostles respectfully and obediently to God say, well, we have to. 
God is more important than you, and he tells us to go and tell them, and so we will go and tell it. All right, they're performing miracles, and they're getting this renown around the city of Jerusalem. Everything in the book of Acts so far has really taken place within the city of Jerusalem. And that, that persecution that we saw last week, as they were told not to preach, as they were beaten, as they were um, threatened, even threatened up to uh, the point of death, that is really in some ways the first substantial like outside pressure that comes on the church in its early stages. But today we're actually going to study what I would consider one of the first internal threats that the church really faces as they're beginning. And that's why this passage matters for us. As you read this passage, if you've been in church a long time, if you've read through the book of Acts before, this might be a noteworthy um, uh, passage for you. You might read it, you might see the, the heading of seven chosen to serve, and you go, oh, I know what this is about. It's about deacons. And then if you're anything like me, you go, well, I don't necessarily want to be a deacon, and so I don't know that I have to listen too much to what this, what this passage is about. But what I want us to see is that the main point of this passage is not a job description for deacons. The main point of this passage is, act, is actually a job description for the entirety of the church. It's actually us um, understanding how issues in the body can completely derail the church's witness. So the central theme is not what is a deacon, what do they do, who gets to be a deacon. That's not the central theme that we're going to talk about today. We will talk about that, but that's not the, the main thing for us. The central thing that we need to see is the importance of unity in the body of Christ. That's the central theme that all this kind of revolves around today. We'll look through um, a few sections of this text. We're going to spend a lot of time in verse 1 because there's a lot to understand there. Um, and then we're going to uh, talk there about unity in the kingdom. We're going to go next into verses 2 and six. We're gonna, two through 6, and we're going to talk about um, working towards unity, um, working for unity. And then lastly and not least in verse 7, we'll talk about the increase of the word. So in verse 1, we see this. We see that this conflict begins to break out um, between two groups of people, the Hebrews and the Hellenists, right? Now, in your Bible, it does not say a conflict arose. It says a complaint arose. Maybe it says a murmuring arose, right? You have this beautiful word picture of how we all know how this is. When you're in a room, you're in a situation where some tension starts to build, some relational tension starts to surface, and you kind of all feel it. You're kind of all like, hmm, something's not right here. We're kind of on the edge of a fight. We're kind of on the edge of something happening. You see the complaint, the murmuring, begin to kind of rise up in the body, which before now was characterized, what does Acts say over and over again? Characterized by being of one heart, unity of one accord. And now, now there's a complaint, which if not checked, will lead to not just a complaint and some hurt feelings, but a fracture, a problem, a division in the church. Now, the Hellenist is probably not a word that you uh, read a lot or see a lot. Someone who was a Hellenist um, was somebody who was an Israelite. They were born from Israelite parents, but they weren't necessarily born in Israel, right? Israel as a nation over their history was, they were persecuted, they were exiled, they were sent into different countries, different nations. And at this point in time, um, uh, someone who was a Hellenist would have been born in part of the, the Greek-speaking portion of the world, at that time. That's kind of what the word Hellenist means. And so they were Jewish people, truly, through and through, right? Jewish parents, they believed in it, they observed it, but they weren't born in Israel. So they didn't speak Hebrew natively. They didn't read the Old Testament in Hebrew. They would have read it in Greek. 
Um, and so as you can imagine, them versus the Hebrews, right? Hebrews would have been people who were born actually in the limits of Israel. If you have groups of people that are born in different parts of the world, that are born in vastly different cultures, that have different languages that they speak, they have different customs, they have different kind of character about themselves, they have kind of different culture, right, about who they are. You just, people develop their own sort of flavor, if you will. And the way that human beings work in our sinfulness is we're very good about taking any sort of difference between us and somebody else, a group that we are in and a group that somebody else is in, and we're great at turning that into not just us and them, but us versus them, right? So that there wasn't exactly the most harmonious relationship between Hebrews and Hellenists. There's sort of a, we're the true Israelites, you're like maybe not the true Israelites. There's that kind of tension going on. So what we see here is not just some innocent conflict that pops up. This is something that would actually be loaded with a lot of meaning. It would actually create in quite a, a barrier to the unity of the church and thus the witness of the church going forward if it wasn't solved. And the reason that this is all so important is because, as it says here, the widows of the Hellenists seemingly were exclusively passed over in the daily distribution of food. So at this time, right, the, the early church is radically generous, just like we ought to be, and they were actually physically putting food on the tables of the poor, the needy, and the widows that were in the body. They would literally distribute that every single day. But one group is not getting what they need. One group is being passed over. And that's a threat, whether it was on purpose or not. That's one of the things I want us to see in this passage. There's no indication that this um, was um, on purpose or it was an accident. And it doesn't even really describe, um, you know, it says that they have a complaint that they were being neglected. It doesn't even waste time telling us whether or not how valid that complaint was. The real central thing for us to understand is whether it was on purpose, on accident, valid, or maybe a little bit exaggerated, it didn't matter because the division was popping up in the church. So the details of like, well, I don't know, you only got 33% less or something like that in the daily distribution, that didn't matter. The problem is that within the body of Christ, these two groups of people were beginning to see one another as different. And that is something that God hates because God has a clear priority for unity within the body of Christ. There's lots of passages we could turn to. I invite you to write these references down. In Galatians 3.28, it says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek. You could maybe insert Hebrew or Hellenist into that verse. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In James chapter 2, it warns against the sin of partiality. It says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. In verse 9, But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Right? Partiality is showing favoritism to a group of people because they're rich, because they're poor, because they're like you, because they're not like you. That's the sin of partiality. And God condemns it. In 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 9, we have this amazing expression of the unity that God gives us as the people of God. It says this, But you, right, he's speaking to Christians, and in 1 Peter, he's actually speaking to Christians who are scattered among exiled nations. So they actually have, like, physically nothing to do with each other. And he says, You are a chosen race. You are now one chosen race, even though their skin color probably looked different. He said, you are a royal priesthood, 
even though you worship in different parts of the world. He says you are a holy nation, even though you are made up of all kinds of nations. You are a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Listen to this verse. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people, because once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. There's something in this verse about the, the mercy of God, the salvation of Christ is so powerful that it's as though you didn't even have an identity as a person or a people before you experienced it. That's how radical it is. This murmuring that arose needed to be handled because of verses just like that. Because what they were struggling with to see is that before they, before they knew Christ, they might have had all kinds of complaints against each other. They might have all kinds of issues with each other. There might have been all kinds of things that were not their preference. It wasn't what they liked. It wasn't, you know, their, their crowd. But once they came to Christ, what they had to see is that they were now completely and totally one. They had to see that. And they, they just, in coming to Christ, they kind of missed over that fact. One commentator said um, that coming to Christ should have, as he put it, extinguished all the little fires of jealousy that might have existed between them. But somehow some of them are still burning. And so what we need to understand as Christians is that as we come together and we are called one in Christ, we're called one body, all members of the body of Christ. What we need to see, just like they need to see, is that we need to love and care for one another like we are our own bodies, not because that other person that you're caring for is so special, not because that person that needs something from you is like you, or they're your friend, or they, you get along well with them, or, or you like them and they like you, or anything like that. No, we care for one another in the body of Christ purely because of the sake of Christ. We care for one another in the body of Christ. We have unity with one another across any line you can think of, not because of how similar or dissimilar we are to somebody else. We have it entirely because Christ has made us one. And this is something that I will say often. People that know me well will hear me repeat this all the time because I think it's really important for us in our day and age and, and how we are obsessed with the idea of identity today. The most important thing about you, I want you to look at me, the most important thing about you and your identity and who you are is not your skin color, it is not your background, it's not how rich or poor you were growing up, it's not about the customs of your family, it's not about how good or how bad your family life was, it's not about the jobs that you've had or you haven't had, it's not about anything like that. The most important thing, the single most important thing about any human being on this planet, the most important thing is whether or not you know Jesus Christ. That is the thing that defines you more than anything else in the world. Anywhere else you go and you try to find sort of an identity and who you are and what you mean and what people mean is not as true as that one. So what, what Christ did, we have to understand this, the most important thing about us before Christ was not our hobbies, not our identity, not what we did, not our practices. The most important thing about us before Christ was the fact that we were a stranger from God. The most important thing about you and me outside of Jesus Christ, is that we are entirely a stranger from God, as the scriptures say, alienated, separated from him, and hostile to him. But then Christ comes, right? He comes, takes on the flesh of man, and he takes on the identity of a stranger to God. 
so that you and I, through faith in Jesus, not through any works of our own, but through simple trusting in Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross, we're no longer a stranger to God, but we get reconciled to him, and we get called instead a friend and a child of God. And when Jesus does that, when he takes our identity of sinfulness and in strangeness, separation from God, and he gives us instead a perfect unity and reconciliation with God, then who we are has been radically redefined from the bottom to the very top of us. There's no part of who you are that the, the salvation that Christ has given you, there's no part of you that shouldn't be touched by that. Every single part of you and me. We have become something entirely different, a new creation, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people of his own possession. Jesus has purchased for his church on the cross, one of the things that Jesus bled and died for in the salvation of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation is a heavenly unity that cuts across every single divide that our world can think of. He has paid for that with his own blood. That every single divide that this world uses to, to, to estrange us from one another, to separate us from one another, to create in-groups and out-groups and all this stuff, every single one of those things, Jesus went to the cross, he purchased for, for himself people of every tribe, every tongue, every nation, all across the planet to give them a heavenly unity. As it says in the scriptures in Ephesians 2, he has torn down the wall of hostility, not just between you and God. He has also torn down the wall of hostility between us and one another. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens, whether you're Hebrew or Hellenist. You are fellow citizens with the saints. You are fellow members of the household of God. The church has to understand this truth. We have in common the only important thing. The only important thing. Now, even though that is true, all those things are factually true. Even though all that is true, it doesn't mean that hurt and offense doesn't happen. Right? Even though Christ has, has purchased unity, even though Christ provides that to us, that doesn't mean that you and I were a room full of sinful people. It doesn't mean that we are above hurting one another, accidentally or on purpose. Right? Even like we see in this text, right, incredibly godly people of one accord, of one heart and mind, yet there's still conflict happening. So I want to give us a warning as we read this text. We need to understand the fact that, that can and will, at some point, happen right here. I know we're, we're a new church. I know that none of that stuff maybe has happened so far, but it will happen here. There will be conflict. There will be hurt that happens between you and another church member on purpose or on accident, hopefully on accident, right? But the reason that this, this fact of our unity is so, tr is so important is because when that does happen, if we really believe in this, it, it completely changes the way we respond to the conflict, right? Somebody has a, they, they've said something offensive to us, they've, they've done something offensive. The way, if we believe we have a unity in Christ with that person, it completely changes the way that we respond to it. The way that the world responds to it is we basically just curse one another, move on, cut that person out of your life, right? Cancel them, forget about them, never talk to them again. They're dead to you. They're awful. Instead, the way that Christ would have us do it is that when we go into 
issues like that, when we have to solve problems like here, where we've got these, maybe these groups of people, and we're like, hey, something seems wrong. There's tension here, even on the level of where we were born. There seems to be a, 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 a fault line here. We need to come to that understanding that we do, in fact, have a unity with the other person, which is a responsibility from us to fight for more unity as a brother and a sister, not as friends who can easily cut one another out of their life. So when we do have conflict, when issues do come, we face them as members of one body. We don't just say, you come here, meet me on my terms, and if you won't do that, I'm out. We, we face them as members of one body, which means that humility, uh, a generosity, a sacrificial heart is required by absolutely everyone in the room. And the reason we have that is because Christ has made us fellow heirs. It doesn't matter how similar or dissimilar we were before that. He has made us fellow heirs. And the apostles understand this. That's why they move into um, working to solve this problem in verse 2, right? The, the 12 apostles summon the full number of the disciples. They gather as much of the church as they can, and they say it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So what are the apostles saying here? They're saying, yes, this is important. Yes, this needs to be handled. But they wisely understand that if they were to give all their time to handling this, there would be no preaching of the word happening. So instead of just dismissing it and moving on, they instead empower the church to rise up and solve this problem through the body. Because just because their gifting and their calling doesn't lead them to solve this problem doesn't mean that it's not an important thing. So instead, this becomes about the body of Christ finding seven good men of, of good repute, right? Re respected men, people that would be trusted to carry this out well, um, find men that are wise and full of the Spirit so they can entrust this ministry to them so the ministry of word and prayer won't be hindered. And the reason that, I, that one of the things I want us to see in this is that the church is not only responsible for the proper teaching of the Word of God. The church is not only responsible for properly teaching the Word of God. The way that God has the church drawn up and the purpose of us gathering, the purpose of us being a body, is not that we would merely teach the Word of God and speak it and share good information with people, but that we would also display the Word of God to the world. That, we would, that the fruit of the Word of God would show up in us so that the world would see it. And that's what's at stake here, right? The, the fruit of unity, the fruit of one body with Christ is not being shown. And the disciples, the apostles are like, we must fix this. So it's not just that we are called to give a bunch of information to the world. We are called to also, to also show transformation to the world. What does it look like when these things which are true actually change who we are? What does it look like in the body? Uh, this past week I was up um, on a little vacation with my family, and we were um, at a place up north in Ohio, and one of, the place, one of the things that's great about it is there's a beach, and that means that there's great sunsets right over where this beach is. And what I thought about as I was kind of thinking about what's the purpose of the church of living these things out, as I thought about the difference between me taking a fantastic picture of that sunset in black and white and sending it to you. 
And in black and white, you might be able to, like, you'd make it out. You'd understand what the picture is. You probably even would see some of the beauty of that moment in black and white. But the difference is, like, whenever you would turn that into color, the actual glory of that would be seen. Right? And if you don't believe that, talk to anyone who's colorblind and, and, and ask them how bad it is how, that we, they want to see in color. Or even go and look up a video on YouTube of somebody who sees in color for the first time. There's this glory that shines through, not just in the mere kind of information of the picture of here's where the lines were in black and white, but instead when that full beauty of color shines through it, then it's truly beautiful. And that's what happens when the church not just understands the right things and teaches the right things, but when the church actually lives these things out, the world around you, around us, begins to see the teachings, the fruit of Christ, not in black and white, not in emotionless words on the page, but in living, breathing color. That's the calling that we have. I was reading in the, the Word today, the, the Bible plan that I'm on actually Turn to Psalm 133, and you might know the first line of that psalm. It says, How good and pleasant it is when, the godly pe- when God's people live in unity. How good and how pleasant it is. How good and how pleasant it is when you and I, as the body of Christ, help one another move. How good and how pleasant it is when, when you and I, as the body of Christ, babysit that baby for that couple so that they can have a night off. How good and how pleasant it is, how beautiful it is, how glorious it is when we choose to serve one another in the body of Christ. How good and pleasant it is when you, as a body of Christ, you go and you cover the bills for another member. How good and pleasant and beautiful it is when you suffer with someone else in the body of Christ. That is a good and a beautiful and a glorious thing. And that, that type of beauty... That type of glory that is seen in the the body of Christ being knit together across all kinds of lines, all kinds of potential divisions, overcoming those things, living in harmony with one another, sacrificing, radically being generous with one another, even though there's no reason to apart from Christ. That kind of beauty is its own witness and apologetic to the world around you. If you want to, one of the ways to be evangelistic and to show Christ to the world is ironically, as Galatians says, to do good to the household of faith. There's something about how God has made the world that as we um, display that unity amongst ourselves, that sacrificial, radical generosity, it is beautiful to the world because it shows them something radically different than the culture that they live in. Now, in the midst of this, the, the apostles established the office of deacon. You might read through this and think, well, the word deacon is not actually in this passage. Um, and I would challenge you on that front because the word deacon actually just means somebody who serves. That's what the word deacon means. And so even as it says, serve tables, it's talking about people who serve. It's talking about deacons who would literally be putting food on the table for needy people. They would literally be serving tables in this scenario. So the office of deacon that we see here and we see in places like 1 Timothy throughout the New Testament, the office of deacon is one of the two um, offices that God has created to help his church function alongside the office of pastor. And the, the responsibilities of a deacon is it's somebody who's entrusted with a specific ministry 
in the life of the body to lead that ministry. Unlike the role of an elder or a pastor, they're not invested with a teaching authority. It's not a teaching role. They're not given spiritual responsibility or accountability over the church. Instead, they come along as servants to the church according to their gifts, their specific passions, and they help lead ministries so that the church can grow. And often, in the case of deacons, as it is here, that ministry is incredibly practical. Most of the time, it is an incredibly practical thing, like helping bills get paid, or food be delivered, or homes being fixed, things like that. Now, what happens as they choose these seven men, you might not notice this right away, but every single one of the seven men that are chosen here are likely Hellenists, every single one of them. Um, and the reason that I think that that happened, maybe it was completely on accident to them, although I don't think it was on accident to God. I think that at some level, the church wanted to make sure that this problem was completely solved. So this is the party that is um, in need. This is the party that's being mistreated or passed over. Let's get seven people from that party to make sure that this is no longer neglected. And what happens is the church begins to live all these things out, right? As, as this wound is sort of healed, as they, they um, set these men before the apostles, they pray for them, they lay their hands on them and commission them to this service, we see that probably in the background of this text, the unity of the church is restored, right? The conflict that was there, the complaint that was there, has been sacrificially answered by the church, and so that unity can begin to grow again. And what we see as a result of that is the increase of the Word of God in verse 7. The Word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So God continues to bless the church, even to the extent that priests and members of the priestly family come to faith. That's radical because for a priest to come to faith in Christ, they're giving up their line of work. Right? Their line of work is sacrifices in the temple. And what they're saying is, oh, my job is done now. What my job meant for ages has now come to fruition in this Savior. But I want us to remember as we read this passage is that the church grows in two different ways. And here at Maranatha, we have a desire for two different kinds of growth. It's not merely a horizontal growth where more people show up, more people enjoy the services, and have fun being part of the church. That's not the kind of growth that we're looking after. Um, instead, we are recognizing the fact that the church grows in these two ways. One is that God increases the number, but it's also that God increases the, the fruit of the Word of God in us. That God would not, that's our prayers at church, that God wouldn't merely maybe bring more people to show up, but that God also would in us increase the word of God. That we would know it, love it, cherish it, obey it more and more. We would have more of a hunger for the word of God because more of the word of God within us, more of the word of God within you and within me makes us so much more useful to the world around us. And as the word of God is taught and as the church lives it out, God begins to bring the increase. So again, I want us to remember as we look at this whole passage today, this is not a passage about being a deacon. And so if you don't want to be a deacon today, it means that we cannot check out and not listen to it. This is instead a message for the entire body. And I want us to remember these two things. The teaching of God's Word needs to be clear. 
needs to be prioritized, needs to be um, put first, but also along with that, the, the fruit of that word, the life of the body also needs to be clear. Not just the teaching of the word of God, but the actual transformation in the church needs to be clearly seen. And that takes the entire church body. That doesn't just take 12 um, apostles and seven deacons to display the fruit of the kingdom of God. It takes the entirety of the church body. So whoever you are today, that includes you. You have a responsibility today. And not just a responsibility, but an opportunity to bring God's kingdom um, to bear. And because this incorporates all of us, all of us need to feel a burden for this. We all, all of us need to feel a burden for of this text, that, that we would be people without partiality. That we would be people who wouldn't permit it in our church and definitely don't permit it in ourselves. That we would be people who truly believe and embrace one another because we have embraced Christ. That we fight for an increasing amount of unity in community among us. We don't just um, cut and run or store, stir up division in it because it suits our selfish desires in a moment. One of the things we said as we were planting this church, we said we wanted to bring a few things to Canal Winchester. One of them was a noticeable Christian community. Meaning a, a community, a, a, a group of Christians that was actually distinct. Not just because we were holy and we didn't do sinful things, but we were distinct in the way that we loved one another. That we were distinct in the way that there was actual life and joy and vibrancy in the family of the church. Because the culture that you and I are in is a culture that is isolated, it's fractured, it's selfish, it's tribalistic, it's not connected in any way. And the opportunity you and I have is, is to put out an example for the world of a cross-cultural, a unified, a sacrificial, a generous, a joyful culture, a joyful community, to show the world what that looks like when people actually can live in unity, something that the world does not have, something that the world cannot attain. We want to be a community of people where Jesus said he came that we would have life and have it to the full. We would have a fullness of life, a fullness of joy, that we would actually display that in us, in the community that we are a part of. That needs to be a burden for us because, as I said earlier, that is its own um, weapon and it's its own witness to the world around us, all on its own. And it's far more powerful, listen, that is far more powerful than any fantastic sermon or song or service could ever be. I know so many of the people in the room right now are in this room right now because you came to Maranatha and you saw that there was a unity here, there was a love for the, the body, there was a sacrificial heart among the body, there was a desire to love one another like we were supposed to. And I pray that that is always the case for us because we need it. It is so much more important than any kind of good sermon or song that we could ever sing and hope that that would be enough to bring the nations to Christ. But how do we build that? How do we go about making that happen? There's one, this maybe sounds backwards to you, but there's one thing that I want us to really pour 
our hearts into as we think about how do we actually build some kind of amazing community like that, or rather, how is it built among us? It's not built in anything worldly we can point to, and it's not built by worldly means. We can't program it. We can't develop it in our own strength. It really happens through two simple things, generosity and hospitality. That's how this is built. And I don't, if you might be thinking, well, I don't own my own home, so I don't have to be hospitable. You're wrong. You can be hospitable right where you are, and I'd love to talk with you about how to do that. But it's generosity and hospitality to the entire body. Even the people that don't look like you, even the people that you don't really like naturally on your own, even the Hellenist, even the Hebrew, it's sacrificial generosity and hospitality to every single member of the body. As 1 Corinthians says, even the members of the body that we are tempted to show less honor to, we should actually double back and show a greater honor to them. That's how God builds a community. We talk about community all the time in the world and in the church. We talk about it all the time as a, a core value of a church. And then we just think it's just going to happen. Like it's just going to show up on its own. No, community comes through the, the people of God actually working towards it. Community is when God weaves together these interwoven relationships. And that is built through us being hospitable, bringing each other into each other's lives. As one author said, as we give ourselves to this work of hospitality and unity, God will be engaged in weaving a tight fabric of glorious, genuine fellowship. Glorious and genuine fellowship. And so we need to ask ourselves just two questions as we come away from this text. Given the fact I have been given a new identity in Christ, I was a stranger, you were a stranger, do you show the new identity you've received? Do you still look like a stranger to God? Are you still a stranger to God? Or have you come to know Christ, been made a child of Him, and does it look that way in your life? What part of your life, of my life, looks like we are still a stranger? And secondly, do we display this kind of unity and hospitality towards the body? Are we ready to be sacrificial? Are we ready to sacrificially love one another, even when we step on each other's toes, even when there's conflict and insult, even when there's difficulty? Are we willing to sacrificially love because Christ has sacrificially loved this? This, this means of, of sacrificial, humble generosity, radical generosity, is the way that our king started his kingdom. And that's also the way that the kingdom grows. It's the way he started this, and it's the way that the kingdom will grow. So it may not seem like missions work, but it's missional work. All right? It might not seem like discipleship and making disciples, but I promise you it is. It might not seem all that important to have someone over to your house because they're struggling or because you just don't know them and you want to know them or because you think they're on the outside of the family of the church a little bit and you want to bring them in. It might not seem all that important, but it is, in fact, vitally important for the unity of the church to be built up. God says that it matters. And God will use that to grow in us a community of faith, a truly distinct, noticeable Christian community that doesn't just know the word of God, but actually displays the glorious fruit of a community of Christ. Like we, you and I, have the opportunity in this world to show the world what the new creation looks like. You ever think about that? In Christ, you are a new creation. You are a part of the new creation that Jesus Christ himself is bringing to pass in this universe that you are a part of. 
And right now, you have the opportunity, as the people of God, to show to the world around you what the glorious, perfect, sin-removed new creation looks like. That's the opportunity that you and I have, that the Spirit of God empowers us for. So that hopefully, by God's grace, you and I would shine like a light in the midst of a crooked, fractured, angry, disunified generation. Father God, as we look at your word, Lord, we pray that we would be faithful. God, we pray that the word of God would increase in us. Holy Spirit, increase the word of God, increase the fruit that it bears, increase the joy, increase the glory of your word in us. Make us more and more useful. Lord, make us more and more humble and loving, that as we love you, that love would also show up in our relationships in the body. And that there would be something about us that wouldn't be just, boy, how great is Maranatha and the people there. Lord, may it be that there's something about us in the unity that we have by your Spirit. May it be something that people could actually look at and say that God must be present among those people. Lord, we ask all this, and we know that you are able to supply all of that and more. Amen.